Welcome to Innovate at Open, the podcast that explores open source through the lenses of distributed collaboration, collective invention, and technology creation. I'm your host, Gordon Half, technology evangelist with Red Hat. Hi, everyone. This is Gordon Half, technology evangelist with Red Hat, for another episode of the Innovate at Open podcast. And Today, we're going to talk about containers, grid, high-performance computing, container orchestration, and more. And I have with me my colleague, William Henry, who has a whole lot of experience in this area. William, why don't you introduce yourself? So I'm William Henry, and um, I'm a distinguished engineer at Red Hat. Um, I've had multiple roles uh, with Red Hat over my last 12 years here. And one of the sort of exciting times that I had was as Red Hat were transitioning from essentially a Linux platform company to an expanded uh, role within enterprises and adding value on top of Linux with some other open source projects in the area of messaging and real-time Linux and Grid. Thank you, William. Let me start this off with a little bit of a context setting because the term Grid has been used sort of throughout computing history for a number of different things, including, for instance, some of the early uh, peer-to-peer computing. So to be clear, when I'm talking and we're talking about Grid here, we're really referring to it in the sense of high-performance computing, resource management, and scheduling. William, can you take us through some of the history of this technology? From my perspective, it, it kind of was a breakaway from the whole large supercomputer-based approaches. Um, so as very large organizations, either in the defense field or medical field or whatever, required huge amount of computing as they started looking at the costs of supercomputing and noticing the pricing on cheaper versions of this around distributed computing and they saw the growth of distributed computing along with networking technologies etc there was a shift from well are there certain problems we can try to solve by putting a lot of different processors to work across a network to solve problems. And that proved to be a very effective approach, particularly within the areas of things like um, seismic analysis in the in the uh, oil business or you know scientific analysis of in the medical field, weather related stuff, and, and also in other areas of the military and, and research areas. Um, and then we saw it move into things like uh, animation the sort of uh, movie animation, CGI world as well. So they were looking at it. It was trying to solve a number of different uh, problems. One was that sort of distributed supercomputing problem. And then there was more about high throughput computing, um, on-demand computing, which is kind of more similar to what we're seeing now in some of the container world, data intensive computing, and then also sort of collaborative computing as well sort of working with teams, right, scientific teams. So that's where I see it coming from, a sort of an evolution out of supercomputing to more cost-effective and larger-scale initiatives. And then 
moving from sort of the scientific kind of world into a more commercial-based environment. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the the list of the largest supercomputers over the years, one of the things you saw is we went from a world where you had these vector supercomputers dominated by the likes of Cray to network computers. And initially, these were often proprietary interconnects, or at least there was a real massive different era connects and large risk systems and increasingly although you still do see risk systems there as well these are quote-unquote commodity xa6 systems connected by a couple of standard era connects specifically ethernet and infiniband yeah it was funny i remember on a visit to what about 10 years ago down to um, new mexico to see a DreamWorks-based rack system that they were using for doing animation and seeing it in the same ex-Intel prefab uh, room, massive room in the in the corner beside the New Mexico supercomputer. And the uh, the DreamWorks one was, was, was much larger. So we fast forward to, um, I guess, maybe, maybe about five years or so ago. Containers are coming in. Now, containers, of course, being a technology that's been around for a long time, but containers really becoming this very important technology for computing broadly. And Docker at the time was you know, useful for developers on their laptops and small systems. But if you were going to have applications made up of hundreds, thousands of containers, there needed to be some sort of, well, job scheduling system, resource management system, what have you. And as we all know, con- Kubernetes has become the dominant orchestration technology. But in fact, when this sort of whole thing was was kind of jumping off, in fact, it wasn't clear that there was just one layer there because you had this orchestration layer, which we tended to call it, that was Kubernetes. But then we there was also this idea of resource management, which wasn't really quite the same thing. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So it, this was one of the, the things we I noticed sort of early on was, although there was a lot of parallels to, to grid, and we're seeing those parallels moving much more closely together now that we're several years into the the sort of container technology-based stuff. But originally, you could see some differences. So with the large sort of grid computing efforts, they were focused more on having a well-defined cluster of resources that were uh, quite often hardware-based, right? So uh, later on, we saw some virtualization and stuff coming into that. But for the most part, you know, it was, I have a large cluster of hardware. I can add to that cluster, et cetera, uh, although that might be difficult depending on the grid technology I'm using. But really, I want to try to share those resources at the start within one sort of organization and then more broadly to to, to uh, multiple organizations. So you had the idea of trying to give certain amount of resources to, let's say, 20% of the resources to this particular research field or uh, another 10% of the resources to that field. 
And of course, originally it would be just one group. Hey, I'm, I'm running this huge big job. I'm going to take over the supercomputer today and do it. But then it was like, well, hold on. How do we, how do we divvy it out and, and, and provide fair shares between each of the, the different groups uh, while at the same time billing the different organizations as well. So it started getting very, very complicated. But most of the jobs, when you think of it, were very batch oriented. So they were like, I need to take over the grid today to run this particular large workload of batch computational stuff or uh, data intensive analysis work, and then I'm going to finish an end. And that evolved even more to, oh, I could set up a workflow of this work. So it started getting very complex with resource management, fair shares, costing back to different departments because these were expensive resources, um, the idea of you know data versus high computation, and also how do we get workflow into this. And, and that sort of contrasted with what we saw originally in the container world, which was essentially a using a cluster of hardware, completely abstracting that away uh, into abs- uh, abstract concepts of, of CPU percentages or whatever, or memory percentages, and trying to keep the workload up. So it was, it was often about, hey, I want to be able to run this application, which might have been a website, et cetera, and I want to run it for forever. Um, and oh, by the way, can you, can you scale it up a bit on high demand and scale it back down again? So it was a different kind of workload on a similar concept of a, of a cluster. Back then, um, what people, you know, originally it would be a very homogenous set of machines. Uh, but then as, as different sort of university resources were saying, hey, you know, I could add our department's computers uh, over onto this grid technology for, for use. Then it started getting complex in terms of describing, oh, this is a particular type of uh, chipset base. It's uh, It's got this operating system running on it. And so it also became very complex into what type of workloads were you going to schedule. In other words, oh, I have this huge pool of resources, but my workload needs to run on Linux or it runs needs to run on Solaris or it needs this particular type of hardware uh, base. So it, 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 it became very, very, very complex in terms of the matchmaking efforts that were going on to get things up. This machine has GPUs. This machine has a desktop. Are, are we adding our desktops at night to the grid? Because during the day, the, like say, animation artists are, are working on these machines, but at night we don't want them idle. So are these Windows machines versus Linux machines? So there was a huge amount of, of effort going into doing this crazy amount of matchmaking that the resource manager would have to do, right? So there was matchmaking, and then there was this idea of giving out, you know, saying, I'm going to give you a claim on that particular machine at this sort of time, or there was booking machines in advance kind of concepts. It became very, very complex. And originally out there, a lot of this was, you know, there was very expensive applications that were doing this, like platform LSF or things like that. Um, And then there was efforts to try to do open source with taking a academic project like Condor from from up up in Wisconsin, uh, University of Wisconsin. They had a Condor project, and so Red Hat helped open source that. 
And the more we looked into it, we we saw just this was fantastic stuff, hugely complex matchmaking capabilities. Um, and, and, and it was it was pretty amazing. Learned a lot on that. And then, of course, you had the container revolution. Yeah, I love that. That there was really this huge vision around grid computing around 2000 or so, where I, I think people really imagined really this kind of computing everywhere type of thing. And as you say, uh, you know, peer-to-peer computing, Intel was very very big on this. Uh, Intel CTO at the time referred to P2P possibly going to be bigger than the internet. And however, you know, I think to kind of come back to our earlier discussion, what a lot of this ended up more consolidating into job scheduling across a large, fairly fixed cluster of computing resources. So fast forward back to containers. And Probably to 2013. Contain- containers are getting big. They're becoming more widespread. You had Kubernetes coming onto the scene. You had a variety of other open source resource management pro- projects out there, some of which were basically competitors to Kubernetes, others of which were probably closer to a next generation HPC resource managers of various sorts. And yet today we seem to be, have largely decided we're just going to do Kubernetes. Yeah. Uh, And I was in the middle of this sort of transition and caught a little bit on on the wrong side of it at one point. So let me explain. So having come from this grid technology background with Condor and working with some of the some very, very large clusters. I mean, we're talking 25, 30,000 nodes or whatever, doing massive amounts of work across multiple different movies and stuff in the animation world, for example. So, uh, so the container technology starts coming on. And we already had our own scheduler. Now, remember, when we started this with OpenShift and Red Hat, we had already started using containers, but they weren't, if you like, the um, OCI model or the Docker model back then. They were basically just using raw Linux containers our way. We called them, we called the, the, the ability to start those cartridges. And then we had a, a technology called GearD, uh, which was to schedule them. So it was all open source stuff because that's all we do at Red Hat, but it was our open source projects that we were hoping to get some backing on. But very quickly, we saw the Kubernetes community uh, jump on board with the Docker format at the time. And the so Google I- introduced Kubernetes. We saw it. We said, saw similarities between its approach and the GearD approach. We saw some advantages that it had, some concepts like the pods uh, in Kubernetes that, that seemed to make sense. And we decided to jump on that. Now, that technology was based on the use case that I mentioned earlier, which was really around how do we get developers building apps, apps that are very you know consumer-focused applications web-based applications, for example, how do we get those up and running and, and keep them running on a kind of clustered environment? 
of, of Linux resources. And that was our approach. And so when we saw Kubernetes, we jumped on board with that. But there was another technology around at the time that was popular, another project, an Apache project, it's still around, uh, called Mesos, which was had a bunch of frameworks on top of it that were looking at the ability to schedule sort of workloads. And also at the same time, you had things like the Hadoop environment, which were doing data intensive work. So there was a kind of a struggle at the start around, well, which sort of workloads are we going to be supporting, right? Can we have that, can we support within the Kubernetes world this concept of very, very much almost like batch-oriented work, right? Um, the workloads we were talking about earlier on the grid. And there was a lot of tension there. Yeah, so the tension was, where do we want to put our resources? And 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 it was very, remember too, at the same time as Kubernetes is going, Docker themselves are introducing this concept of Swarm, this project called Swarm. They did some other juggling around as well that, that, that uh, with Moby that confused people, didn't help them, I don't think, a, a lot. Um, and so... Kubernetes has started. You've got Mesos is taking off. Like you know, their their whole big at that time, you know, a Mesos world or Mesos Fest or whatever it was called was much bigger than anything that was going on in the Kubernetes world, and people were super excited about it and all of the different frameworks on top of that for doing the sort of data intensive workloads. Uh, Mesos also looking at what Kubernetes is doing uh, around clustering and. There was a, you know, where do we want to put these resources? Where do we want to put our engineering resources? Kubernetes was also looking at batch work, but remember these batch workloads we talked about earlier are very complex. They're in, they're in, they're in uh, what I would call workflows, right? In other words, let's do this amount of analysis, a uh, thousand CPUs doing this step of our analysis to then doing on the output of that, if it was all successful, then scheduling this, you know, the number of workloads needed to do to work on the output of that in the next step, to doing the next step of a workflow, et cetera, and then consolidating some results at the end. So, so that whole workload stuff didn't have a place in Kubernetes. They had the concept of keep getting a getting a application up and keeping it up and scaling it up and down as needed, but essentially always having it running, right? This whole idea of the replication controller that makes sure that we have this resource available. Whereas if you think of it, the Kubernetes concept of a job was essentially saying, hey, let's run this pod, but it's okay if it dies, we don't have to keep it up. In other words, let it run to the end. Um, And if it dies, don't try to restart it (laughs) because it's a job. And you expect it to die, but that's about as as complex as it was getting on that. And um, at that time, the Kubernetes community and certainly Red Hat decided we needed to not focus on the the sort of the, the batch data analytics world. We really needed to win the battle within the, the the Kubernetes world. Right? Kubernetes was going to be the future. And I was, of course, uh, at the time, there were certain large customers that we were looking at that were looking at the Mesos world. And I was trying to propose that we we try to look at both of those. And this is where I got caught on the wrong side of it. There was a, a certain amount of consensus to maybe we should we should support both Mesos and Kubernetes. But thankfully, the folks on the open shift side of our house decided, no, 
Kubernetes is it. Kubernetes is the future. And so uh, Kubernetes won at Red Hat. And as we've seen, Kubernetes uh, has won in the marketplace as well. There's still a lot of uh, workload that we can talk about that uh, needs to be supported or is beginning to be supported from that grid side of the house or that old you know, uh, high-performance computing side or, or data-intensive computing side or whatever you want to call it. Still a lot of work to be done on that, but Kubernetes is where it's going to, going to happen. Why might you want to use a contain, containers in HPC? Okay, so this is why I think you're going to see a, a much more increase, or you are seeing a, a larger increase of this in the HPC world. Um, and, and you can look around it from the AI machine learning perspective, which is where a lot of this is falling right now. But when you think of it, that's really sometimes complex algorithms on data, right? It's a, it, the AI ML stuff is, uh, is, is where those sort of workloads are falling right now. So what happens is with the container side of this, I get a much more flexible, right? All the matchmaking that we have to do before becomes a lot more simpler. It's all Linux for a start, um, and it's all going to be running on a uh, abstracted away, very homogenous world of compute, right? Um, But let's look at this. From a container perspective now, I can write my, uh, similar to what we did before. Remember these these scientists before uh, were writing an application that they knew their environment, what their environment was, right? Um, And it was the job of the complex matchmaker to figure out how to schedule the jobs on the right machines, right? But the application developer didn't care too much because they were writing to their chosen platform. But in this container world, everyone's writing to the same uh, platform, they're writing to Linux containers. So there's a much greater pool of developers who are out there working on this. Uh, you can containerize your application and therefore provide a great a more amount of agility in terms of updates around that. The scheduling uh, becomes very simpler because really all you're looking for now is the sort of CPU memory type of slices that we're looking at maybe GPUs, depending on the type of workload. Um, And there's been a lot of work in the Kubernetes community around GPUs. So the idea of containerizing it allows the developer to have a lot of freedom and it provides a much more homogenous world for the scheduling of that workload. And so you're seeing then projects like things like Open Data Hub, which are putting their machine learning and and AI sort of algorithms inside of the container world to run on this Kubernetes cluster. One of the things that I think we're, one of the things that we're seeing here is really part of a sort of a long ongoing story, which is enterprise computing and HPC, which used to be totally different worlds, have been coming closer and closer together, really for the last two, three decades or so. Yeah, I think it's fair to say it's the sort of world we're living in now where you bring the sort of hybrid cloud infrastructure along with containers, with the sort of AI, ML, open source projects and all that good. It's kind of like bringing 
bringing the supercomputer to the masses, right? So you, before this was in the realm of, you know, large governments or massive research, you know, well-funded research labs or biotechnology labs or whatever it might be. And now it's like, uh, you know, if I'm a, a small company somewhere, I can bring up a number of resources on a public or private cloud and, and run a workload on an open source AI ML. And, and suddenly I have a supercomputing just consumable on an hourly basis or whatever at my fingertips. It's uh, And so, yeah, the enterprise can now, any department in an enterprise can can quickly spin up this stuff. And we're seeing what I think is amazing is the speed, you know, the, the, the type of effort and work that was done around this to get your workload up years ago on a, on a grid computer was, was a large project and, and a huge effort. But now you're hearing about, you know, uh, the, the sort of like <laughs> campaign website approach to supercomputing problems, right? Uh, I, I mean, I've been a little bit facetious there, but the idea that a small small funded project can spin up a AIML learning project on something. And then and we're seeing it right now with the COVID-19 crisis where everyone is, is seems to be coming, bringing to bear uh, the sort of grid or the Kubernetes concepts to bear on this problem at very low cost. Maybe to close out, what do you see as next steps for Kubernetes orchestration in order to continue to accommodate these other kind of workloads, which sort of came from a different direction? Yeah, I think that all of the pieces are kind of there. And certainly the, the knowledge is there across the communities that are involved in this thing. So you're seeing a you know, the AIML space. Uh, you, we know about distributed computing. We know about all of the different parts of this. The, 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 the computer science part of this is already already there in various areas. What I'm seeing is the next step is streamlining it. So we're still not at the, we're not at the sort of automatic workflow from beginning to end with this. We're still pulling together some pieces. Now, some Enterprises have done this already, but in terms of the, the the mass model for this, from like out on the IoT devices connecting into your edge devices, being consumed on the enterprise platform across hybrid cloud infrastructure, with all the scheduling and the billing and all that good stuff. Yeah, all the pieces are there, but we still are doing these as kind of projects that um, are different in every deployment at the moment, but it's becoming more similar. So I think that that sort of open source initiative that brings it all, and it'll obviously it'll probably, I personally think it'll be in the Kubernetes community, but that brings that whole streamlining of this together in a cohesive manner, as opposed to Let's pick this project here and that project there, and then let's all work together and trying to connect them all. And it's great that it's open source, and it's great that there are open APIs, and we we can do it, and it's going to be low cost. Great, yeah. But wouldn't it be nice to uh, have that tied down for everybody right now? Does that 
Is that where you're seeing it too, maybe, Gordon? Yeah, and I mean, if you look at, you mentioned Open Data Hub earlier, and that's sort of a good example of pulling all of this open source goodness really together and trying to make it more consumable. Right, and I still think that the workflow tools, uh, it's probably another area of the, the framework that needs to uh, become more mainstream as well, right? So the not just running a AI ML workload but the idea of being able to sort of plan out the, the different layers in the workflow. And I'm sure there's projects that I've lost track of in that area too, probably in Data Hub. But um, that plus, though, the, the, the sort of seamless console that allows you to, to see where the data is coming from into the process. You know, uh, like instead of the gathering and the analytics being done on a you know let's gather and now let's bring it over to this you know if if that workflow is streamlined too where the gathering or the 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 data is almost as cicd or devopsy as the uh the the back-end enterprise stuff is at the moment you know so we have the applications in cicd but it's almost like we need to, to connect it all together from the data gathering. It's kind of scary, but it's also that sort of higher level view of it all into one pattern would be really useful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovate at Open. For future episodes, subscribe to Innovate at Open on your favorite podcast app. You could also go bitmason, B-I-T-M-A-S-O-N, blogspot.com for show notes, blogs, and a full archive of episodes and more. Thank you for listening. This is Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist at Red Hat.